Some of you have been kidding me about how last time I preached I left the sermon in the office. So I just wanted you to know that I brought two sermons today. <laughs> and hopefully we'll have time for both. <laughs> so I wanted to share with you this morning that lately I have become kind of fascinated with what appears to be a very genuine friendship between two unexpected people, uh, Michelle Obama and George W. Bush. And there's, there are a whole bunch of photographs out on the internet right now showing the two of them together. And apparently, having some uh, significant friendship. Of course, we cannot see into their souls and know what they think and feel, but according to reports, they have become chummy. And apparently, it happened as a result of two times they happened to run into each other. One was the 50th anniversary of the march in Selma. And the other one was an interfaith memorial service for the Dallas police officers who were shot. It has also been reported that at President Obama's first inauguration, the outgoing President Bush was especially kind to the Obama daughters. Perhaps, we don't know, perhaps he saw in them a kinship with his own two daughters Perhaps as a father, he knew how challenging it would be for both the daughters and their parents to live in the media bubble that they were about to enter. Perhaps Michelle picked up on the genuineness of that concern. Who would not feel some sense of connection with anyone who was kind and generous towards their children? So we don't know how this progressed. And it may seem kind of strange to us, but it does seem to be true that they genuinely like each other and have a friendship and have these, the photographs are out there on the web right now showing them spending time together. Maybe they connect partly because they belong to a club with very few members which is the club of people who have had an address of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's a small club. Maybe they know something about each other that only those people know who have carried that particular weight. So we don't really know exactly how that came about. But the pictures of them together are kind of fascinating to me because they transcend multiple boundaries that exist in our culture right now. Black and white, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, male and female, and not just male and female, but patriarchal and feminist, which they stand for in some ways. So to see them embrace in friendship, I think, 
creates an experience that challenges our mental presuppositions about reality. It's one of those kind of uh, boundary-breaking kinds of experiences. So we, we human beings are complex creatures. We're not just one-dimensional, but we're multi-dimensional people. And we have affinities and loyalties that don't just line up consistently into the same two camps on every question. Might come out differently on certain things. We sometimes love people we don't agree with. There are always comedy sketches about this around Thanksgiving, by the way. You know, the uncle who is difficult. It may be our mothers, our fathers, brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, neighbors, people we went to school with. I have a friend who I went to both high school and college with, um, who I, he is my friend. He works for Trump. And so we have a friendship that is different. And actually, we don't talk that much. <laughs> but we are friends. And I wonder how that friendship will continue. We have a lot of things to talk about. There are many ways we might feel connected to people we disagree with. For example, I am a baseball fan. I know most of you do not know that, but I am. <laughs> and I can honestly say that I feel a kinship with all Cubs fans everywhere. We are brothers and sisters on some level. See, I'm getting some heads shaking on that one. Because we know this, don't we? we? We understand this. And yet, I know that many of those people do not look at the world the way I do. They might look at it totally differently. And yet, there is some kinship there. I'll tell you, when that last out was made in the ninth inning of the seventh game, we were joined together on a cosmic level <laughs> in a mystical experience of joy beyond all measurement and which realistically may never come again. <laughs> but I hope I will. This is a kind of transient experience but actually, all human experiences are transient, so really that doesn't disqualify it or ruin it. So these kinds of experiences are precious no matter how fleeting. But we may have this sense of connection with someone who we either don't know at all or even do know and may not even like that much over the beauty of a piece of music over the incomparable deliciousness of our grandmother's peach cobbler, which joins all people who partake in that ceremony in a state of common joy. We may feel that connection over a powerfully told story that emphasizes some universal aspect of our nature 
or perhaps at a memorial service of a loved one who we did not agree with and maybe often felt grouchy toward, but in that moment of saying goodbye, we're joined in a kind of love for that person. So these experiences do happen. Our boundaries are permeable. I work with clergy, by the way, on projects and work closely together with some clergy who I really know we don't agree about theology at all. But we work together, and that's a good thing. I'm glad that's happening in the world. So our boundaries are permeable, although they can sometimes harden sufficiently to create the illusion that they will separate us from for all eternity. And some boundaries appear to maybe not be amenable to transcending. Maybe that's just too big. The chasm is just too big. Um, I'm not going to talk about anybody, but it could be. People like Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend William Barber, whom we've been studying on Thursday nights, and Sister Simone is another one, and Nelson Mandela is another one that comes to mind. These people hold up the vision of a beloved community where every person is valued and no one is despised on the basis of any category like race or class or religion or lifestyle or nationality. Every person has value and is entitled to be treated with respect and justice and compassion. The song the choir sang this morning is a song about a community like that. That's what that song is about. It comes from the Cape Breton region of uh, the Maritime Provinces in Canada. But that song, now that I've been singing it about three weeks now, is about an ideal community. It says in the song, everyone is cared for. And if you feel low, they bring you up. Now, we don't know what other problems that particular culture may have in the world, but that's what that song is about. Everyone is valued, everyone is cared for in that, in that place. So this is a vision that animates our Unitarian Universalist tradition as well. This idea of an inclusive love. As a matter of fact, we made that part of our mission statement. Inclusive love. It's harder to be inclusive for some people than others. So as these insightful leaders remind us, this vision of ours implies that we make some room in our hearts for those with whom we may be locked in struggle over certain questions or issues. If we believe that no one is going to hell for who they are or what they believe, neither the hell of the afterlife nor the hell of total separation in this life, if we believe that, then that includes all the people apparently however inconvenient and highly irritating that may be. And damn near impossible. <laughs> so, it may be that in that moment when we have that thought that this particular person or that particular person should just, just frankly go to hell. Bosh. And, and when I say that, I realize that's probably not the peak of enlightenment. 
on my part. Probably not the peak. May not even be the worst valley either, I'll tell you that. We are probably not experiencing the deepest truth that the universe offers us when we are in that mental space. So there is a kind of paradoxical dimension of our ongoing struggle to create a peaceful, beloved community. We want that, and we march for that, and we sing for that, and we organize for that. And then there are also ways in which we are involved in a war over that. We're involved in a struggle over that. So there's a kind of paradox there. We are fighting for peace. We are at war in a way for peace. How does one resolve that tension? Perhaps this is a kind of tension or polarity that really never goes away. It never gets solved, actually. Maybe it's just part of our life. Maybe this is just the way the world works. A workshop leader of an event I went to argued that true polarities are never resolved. You can't fix them. You just have to manage them. You have to learn to live with certain polarities in your life. So perhaps we have to find a way to honor our convictions, our principles, our passionate commitments, and yet also find a way not to close our hearts totally to the human beings on the other side, who also love and are loved, who have partners and children they love, and who may be on our side in some other context, and whose lives are valuable in countless other ways outside the context of our disagreement with them. Martin Luther King, who is in a way just one of the great models of how this works. When you have questions about this, I don't know any place, better place to go than to Martin Luther King Jr. To the best of my knowledge, never said that the police with the fire hoses and the billy clubs were going to help. He never said that. And he was a Christian minister who was comfortable with that kind of theology. It would be very tempting to say that. It's, it's like hanging fruit. You know, it's, it's just an easy one. Those jerks are going to hell. And they're going to burn and pay for this racism. Or whatever... King does not say that. He says, amazingly enough, that through nonviolence, their hearts can be changed. That's, that's what he says. That they too are capable of seeing the light of love and justice. Now, it doesn't mean that they will change. We don't want to be fools. It doesn't mean that that will happen in any sort of short-term context. But what King says is that's, that's, they're capable of that. Why? Because they're human beings, and like our purposes and principles say, they have worth and dignity. 
So if they could not possibly ever change, they were always going to be beating people up on that bridge for all eternity, they wouldn't be fully human. They wouldn't have that worth and dignity. So King thinks that they can change. But it doesn't mean they will. That's, that's a different question. What King says, I, which I believe is true, is that our struggle for justice is more anchored and it has more strength and integrity when we keep that possibility alive in our hearts. When our struggle for justice is anchored in love. That's what I think he's saying. That by standing on the side of love, we make the most powerful moral argument for justice. That's the strongest position you can stand on. And from there, your work, your transformational work, will be the most effective. And if we slip out of that, well, we do, we always do, but it will lessen the strength of what we do. If we don't keep this possibility alive, if we close ourselves to this possibility of change for everyone, then we do, in fact, dehumanize the other. Or, as my friends in the No Joke Project say, we otherize them. We otherize them. We make them something that we have no relationship to or any responsibility to because they're so weird that we just don't have anything to do with them. They're, we otherize them. Does anybody ever notice that this happens? I mean, this is something that happens. So in failing to see the humanity of the other, we in some strange way lessen our own humanity as well. At least I think that's the way King sees it. In, in Nelson Mandela's case, you know, Mandela worked out the deal to end apartheid in South Africa while he was in jail by negotiating with the leader of the apartheid government. The two of them were negotiating and they worked out the deal. Through that negotiation, the freedom fighter and the apartheid leader, the clerk was his name, you may remember that. And together they won the Nobel Peace Prize. The freedom fighter and the racist politician worked it out together. Mind-blowing. Of course, there will be times when we have to behave in a very assertive way to defend human rights and civil rights, to stand up for justice, to speak forcefully, maybe get vilified, maybe get arrested for a just cause. To stand in the space of love is not to decrease the assertiveness. As a matter of fact, it probably gives you more energy to do that and more courage and more willingness to take a stand. I think that's the way it works. 
Strangely enough, those who are the models of this kind of assertiveness to be out there in the streets or wherever we need to be are those who counsel us to remember and affirm the humanity of the other. William Barber is a great example of that. We've just been studying him. King, Sister Simone. I know some of you went to a retreat with Sister Simone recently. Similar message. That's nuns on the bus, by the way. So if half the world has no true humanity, then our quest is unlikely to succeed. The odds, that's, those odds are too great. But if everyone in the world is on some kind of developmental journey, everyone, albeit in very different stages of that journey and with different pathways that they view as being the right way to go, then there is more hope for humanity because we're creatures who can learn, who can change, who can see the humanity in each other, which is the skill that brings about the beloved community, that skill to see the humanity in the other. So if we decide that the other is completely worthless, then we start to go more towards what is called war. And we must ask ourselves how much war will be necessary to bring about peace. What will be, what will be the body count? There are probably moments in history when actual war cannot be stopped. There are undoubtedly times where that happens, but we're not at that point in our culture right now. We're not there. We may have serious challenges, but we're not at that point. What we're in is a time of vigorous engagement right now in our culture with words, with marching, with electronic media, with comedy routines and rallies and petitions and meetings and vigils and fusion coalitions. So we're not going to say that because we approach the world with love, we're not going to do all those things. We are going to do all those things. We're going to do all the nonviolent techniques of struggle. But we're not going to let go of our ideals. For our own sanity, our mental, physical, and spiritual health, we need to be marching on the high road, I would suggest. So that's the road of hope, of open minds and hearts, the road where everyone is invited. And even those who refuse to join are still invited. They're invited at every moment to join the march. Come on over. I remember being out on Maine and University one day. We were marching on that corner. It's amazing we haven't all worn down the sidewalk over there. And there were some people in the window of the coffee shop across the street. And we were going like this, like, Everyone's invited. 
That's, that's the nature, because that is the community you're trying to create. So you have to be consistent with the values of that community, if that's the community we want to have, where everyone's invited all the time. So our world is full of unexpected things that happen, and the time we live in right now is an amazing example of all kinds of unexpected things happening in the world. We never have enough data, I would say. We never have enough data to say that someone is totally beyond change. Maybe some psychologists somewhere feel maybe they do have that data, but it would be rare. We don't have the data in our daily life to know that someone is beyond change. We just don't know that. Even that grouchy uncle archetype who shows up on the comedy routines at Thanksgiving and is not only embarrassing and loud and has the wrong opinion on every issue and thinks he knows everything, at the end of the dinner may get some big hugs and there may be reconciliation in that moment. So I think that we are in difficult times and it's not going to let up for a while. It's not gonna become easier right away. And so we're gonna be in process for a while. And I am suggesting that for our own well-being and our health on many levels, and our effectiveness. For those of us who are involved in this kind of thing, that we be loving marchers. I hope we will be peaceful warriors. I hope we will keep our hearts open and keep our minds full of hope and not sink into otherizing which leads to a kind of despair, I think. Amazing things can happen, and undoubtedly will. And if you think this combination is impossible to have, then I ask you to look again at those who have been among the great change agents of all time and read what they say and Tell me if that's not their message. That justice has to be assertively pursued, grounded in love. Come back and tell me if that's what you find when you read those. King says we must achieve peaceful ends through peaceful means. We have to struggle tirelessly for the beloved community until its magnetic appeal ultimately becomes irresistible, as it will because love and justice are the best way to live. And over time, that will become apparent, and we will move in that direction. They will become irresistible 
even for Scrooge, the Grinch, and all those who are not quite ready yet to live in this world. That is what it means when we say we want to love inclusively. May that be our path.